In 1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Mrs. Myra Bradwell, who had apprenticed, passed the bar exam, and had support from legal professionals, the right to practice law. Their decision quoted the Supreme Court of Illinois' opinion that allowing women to be attorneys was never contemplated. A lot has changed in the legal profession since 1872, but there is always room for improvement. From the Florida Bar's Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism, this is never contemplated. Welcome to another episode of Never Contemplated. I'm your host, Heddle Desai. We've interviewed a number of trailblazing jurists here on Never Contemplated, but being a judge is not the end of the professional lives for many of Florida's highest members of judiciary. Many judges go on to share their knowledge by teaching or mentoring after retirement. For example, Justice Rosemary Barquette, who was the 71st Florida Supreme Court Justice and the first woman to serve in that position, went on to serve on the Federal 11th Circuit, as did Justice Barbara Lagoa, the first Latina woman to serve on the Florida Supreme Court. After retiring from the 11th Circuit, Justice Barquette joined the Iran United States Claims Tribunal located in the Netherlands. Justice Barquette also continues to champion issues regarding international human rights. Justice Peggy Quince, the first woman of color to serve on the Florida Supreme Court, went on to sit on the executive council of the appellate section of the Florida Bar after she retired. Many judges have gone back into private practice, like Judge Nikki Clark, who served on the first district court of appeal. Our next guest also continues to be a trailblazer, even after leaving the bench. Simone Marsteller currently serves as a secretary for the Agency for Healthcare Administration, or ACA. She served as an appellate judge on the first DCA from 2010 to 2016. Before and after serving on the first DCA, she served in various state agencies in the legal positions of appellate counsel and general counsel. She's also served as the head of agencies such as the Department of Juvenile Justice, the Florida Ethics Commission, the State Information Office, and the Department of Management Services. She is known for her ability to build teams and motivate people to get things done. Secretary Marsteller received a business degree from Stetson University and her law degree from Stetson University College of Law. Welcome, Secretary Marsteller, and thank you for joining us on Never Contemplated Today. I know it's the legislative session, so I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. How are you doing? I am doing well. I'm happy to be here. It's a beautiful day in Tallahassee, and yes, session has begun. <laughs> you have a smile on your face, so it can't be that bad yet. Not yet. Yeah. So just for our listeners, we've known each other for quite a while, but many of our listeners don't know a lot about you other than your public service. So I'm going to just dive right into what I know about you and that um, that you were originally born in Liberia. Correct. How did your family end up in St. Pete, which is where you grew up? Well, it's one of those stories that you can't uh, have written um, any better. So my, my parents actually met in Liberia. My father was from Ohio. And he had worked pretty much all his life for Firestone, you know, the folks that do the tires and the car repairs, et cetera. And Firestone still has and, and did have for decades a um, like a rubber operation, pr production operation in Liberia. 
and he had the chance to to go to Liberia from Ohio uh, in the 50s to be an operations supervisor there. So he was there working. My mother, who is from Guyana in South America at the time in the 60s, was living in London, uh, studying nursing, I believe. She went to Liberia ostensibly to get to marry a Liberian guy that she had met in London. Now, now she never gave me all the details, okay? That sounds like which a is story fair, in itself. Which is fair. <laughs> um, but anyway, suffice it to say that that whole arrangement didn't work out quite as she had anticipated. And um, over time, she took a job in a furniture store in Monrovia, which is the capital of Liberia. And one day my dad came in to buy furniture and that's how they met. Um, and so my dad was retiring or retired uh, about the time I was born. And in the early 70s, he came back to the States for some eye surgery and decided that he wanted to relocate to St. Petersburg, which is where his favorite sister, Ida, lived, Ida after whom I am somewhat named. Um, and so that's how I ended up growing up in St. Petersburg. And, and how old were you when you came over? I was a little more than nine years old, so I was in the I was in the sixth grade um, at the time, and um, have lived in Florida ever since. So you come in for middle school, go to high school in St. Pete, mm -hmm. and then you end up at Stetson for undergrad. What was your major there? My major was business administration, only because uh, at the time the school did not have a computer science major, which is what I wanted to do. And when they said, well, we don't have computer science, but you can major in math, I thought, nah, I'll go, I'll go to the business school where I, don't, where I don't have to do a ton of math and I don't have to do a ton of science. And at the time, they had a swimming requirement, if you can imagine. Didn't have to do that in the B school either. So, A swimming requirement to graduate from Stetson? If you went to the liberal arts college for whatever reason. I don't know. <laughs> well, everyone should know how to swim. I mean, not that I didn't know how to swim. I just didn't want to have to swim on demand. So you leave uh, Stetson in Deland, Florida, and you go back to St. Pete. Is that right? Ultimately, yes. But um, in the middle of my undergrad career, I got pregnant. I had a baby girl. And so I worked for a little bit and then went back um, in 1987 for my senior year in undergrad, graduated in 88, and then went back to St. Petersburg. So you have a small child, you finish your undergraduate degree, um, and you go back to St. Pete. How was working and being a mom at that young age? I well, think it's young. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was young. I mean, you know, my mother was there. Thank God for her. She uh, was a huge help and a huge support, you know, from, from the moment that I discovered that I was expecting a baby, right? So she was just very understanding. If you knew my mother, she was this tough West Indian woman, you know, just no nonsense. And she was just amazing, you know, during that time. And so challenging though it was, it we we did it. We made it work. Um, when I left undergrad and moved back to St. Petersburg, I was working for what was then the St. Petersburg Times, now called the Tampa Bay Times, which breaks my heart, um, and Florida Trend Magazine in their advertising departments. And so, you know, it was just working, going home, kid in daycare, Mom, you know, helping out where where she could and did, and we made it work. Well, it sounds like your mom was an amazing strength for you, an amazing woman. Was she an attorney? No, she was not. Uh, not How about all. your dad? Neither of them. So um, my dad was born in 1906, my mother in 1923. 
both from poor families. Neither of them went to high school. I think my mother's um, formal education ended around what they would call sixth form, some, something like that. And I think my dad had a little bit of high school. But uh, both of them individually in their 60s went uh, and got their GEDs. Oh, that's great. Well, what motivated you to go to law school? I don't even know if it was motivation. It was, um, I had gotten to a point, I was I was doing, you know, well, working and everything was going well. I had bought my first house. My daughter was in elementary school. Everything was going fine. But I felt like I needed to pursue a graduate degree that would open more opportunities for me professionally and, you know, improve uh, my life and my daughter's life. And so I thought about, you know, what my options were. And at the time, I thought my options were either to get a master's in business administration or the Juris Doctor. I really didn't want to do the MBA. And I was living in St. Petersburg. I had gone to Stetson undergrad. Stetson Law School was there. And I thought, okay, I'll go get my my, uh, legal degree. Not at all planning to practice law at all. I just went simply for the degree. Well, how was going to school and being a parent? I mean, law school is hard enough. Did you go full-time? I did. Well, yes, because Stetson at the time only had full-time as an option. And, you know, when I have learned in my life, when things are meant to be, it's not like they're perfect, but everything works out. So when I went to law school, I was 29. My daughter was 10. She was in school during the day. I was in school during the day. I would, you know, be in class, leave leave class at the end of my class day, pick her up from school, take her home, get her fed, help with homework, put her to bed, and then I would study. And that's how it, that's how it worked. Then you graduated from Stetson. And did you enjoy any aspects of law school? It just sounds like you were really busy. <laughs> you know, I always, I when, when I talk to people who say, oh, I love law school, I always kind of look at them a little, you know, <laughs> uh, skeptically. Um, I didn't in all candor enjoy law school. I didn't enjoy the experience. But underneath all of that, you know, the competitiveness and fighting for grades and and trying to adjust to that whole new world, because it was for me, I didn't have any lawyers in my family, I didn't know any lawyers. So it was really adjusting to a whole new um, world and way of thinking and way of analyzing and all of that. Beneath all of those frustrations, I knew, I knew, I knew that that was exactly where I was supposed to be. So from, I guess, you know, on one level, I enjoyed it because I knew I that was where I needed to be. But the day-to-day, oh my gosh, <laughs> I you know, my family will tell you that every semester I was threatening to quit. Yes. I know a lot of people who, who mm-hmm. made it through despite the stress, I think unnecessary stress. So, I would agree. For law school. Mm-hmm. But you make it through, and then you end up going to clerk at the 5th DCA. I clerked at the 1st DCA. I think that's where we met. I was Mm -hmm. clerking. Um, I thought it was a great experience for just being out of school. I got to see other attorneys practice. Did you enjoy your clerkship? I loved it. Uh, Who did you clerk for? I clerked for Emerson Thompson, uh, now retired. Um, He was a wonderful boss and mentor and now friend. He um, he recognized something in me. I don't know what it was at the time, but he recognized something in me that he 
considered, you know, that I had the right combination of skills and abilities that that he was looking for. Because don't get me wrong, I didn't graduate in the top 10% of my class. I wasn't on the bottom 10, okay, but not at the, on in the top 10. But he told me um, soon after he hired me, he said, well, you know, you also have had some professional experience and I could tell, you know, apparently I was a good writer, et cetera, et cetera. And it was just a great job. His approach, his approach to judging and making judicial decisions was exactly what I thought I had envisioned judicial decision-making to be. Um, and he was just wonderful to work for and just smart and wise and, and, and just great. And I would have stayed and become a career clerk, but at some point I thought, mm, you know, you've taken all this time, you've spent all of this money, you've really invested a lot in your JD you really should at least go out and see what law practice is like. Now, I knew myself well enough to know that I didn't want to do trial work um, and that I wanted to do appellate work. And so those were the types of positions that I pursued. But had it not been for that, you know, for all I know, I'd still be at the 5th DCA. I, I doubt that very much, but uh, but we're glad that you made your way to Tallahassee, I think, right? Mm -hmm. You became uh, the appellate counsel for the Agency for Healthcare Administration, where you is, you are now currently the secretary. Mm -hmm. So you've come full circle on that. Um, what kind of work did you do as an appellate attorney? Um, at the time, the agency was handling um, healthcare practitioner regulation for the Department of Health. So most of my responsibility when I first uh, became an attorney for ACA was um, defending those final orders, uh, so license suspensions, things like that, defending those orders on appeal, mostly in the first district court of appeal. So naturally, my first oral argument was in the first DCA, and I'll never forget my boss at the time, Kathy Kasperzak, who was fantastic, who actually... When I saw her doing an oral argument in the 5th DCA when I was clerking, I sat there and on. I thought, oh, my God, I want to be her. <laughs> and lo and behold, they advertise a position and she ends up being my boss. But that's just how sometimes life works out. Um, but I remember I went in to do my first oral argument and Kathy said, oh, you know, tell the tell the judges that this is your first professional oral argument. They love that stuff. So, you know, fool me. I got up and I introduced myself, may it please the court, blah, blah, blah. I just want to let, you know, your honors know this is my first professional oral argument. And they hammered me for 20 minutes. <laughs> but, you know, after that, I was I had no more fear of oral argument. Um, so it ended up being, you know, a smart thing to do. It's one of those experiences that you're totally scared to do. And then once you do it, you're so glad you have it under your belt, mm -hmm. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Well, so you come full circle as an agency attorney. You're working uh, there, but you quickly move up. And you've since between the time of being there uh, as an appellate attorney and now being secretary of the agency, you've worked at numerous agencies. You've been the head of the Department of Business and Professional Regulation, you were Secretary of Juvenile Justice, you were the state's Chief Information Officer, a number of, of things. You also served at the uh, Florida Ethics Commission. Mm -hmm. So all of these things, uh, can you tell us what kept you working for public service 
and what the joys and the challenges were of, of being a government attorney? Well, I, and I've said this many a time, my career, my career in public service really found me. You know, when I moved here to take the job with the agency, I had no vision at all about staying in Tallahassee or how long I would be here or what my career would look like or, or frankly, what I would do next. I had no idea. I ca- I came to take that job and that was as far as I, you know, was see- was looking as far as, you know, uh, looking into the future. But I think I am, I don't think, I know I am someone who really needs, I need variety to stay engaged and to not be bored. And if there is one thing that I can say about a career in state government and public service is that it is never boring. It has so much, so much variety and the the breadth of issues that you get to deal with, whether you're a lawyer or you are, um, you know, managing a bureau or whatever, whatever it may be. Because government touches everybody's lives and virtually every aspect of everybody's lives from birth to death, every issue that you can possibly think of is going to come across your desk at some point if you choose to have a career in public service. I have had some of the most rewarding work that I think I ever could have had and wouldn't have had the chance to have if I had chosen a different path. On that subject, I'm not going to make you pick a favorite agency that you worked for, but maybe what is something, one issue or one project that you worked on that was especially rewarding that you'd like to talk about? Oh, gosh. I mean, I've had so much fun at all of my agencies. I mean, we're doing we're doing some really neat stuff right now. One of one of the things that, you know, when you look at my resume on paper, none of it seems to fit or to make sense. but if you were, you know, looking at it from my vantage point. So now here I am at, at ACA where we are doing a, you know, a major technology and transformation project called Healthcare Connections or FX. That pulls in my experience at management services, at DBPR, as state CIO. You know, obviously I knew a little bit about what ACA already did because of my experience um, in 1999 as an appellate attorney there, you know, at DBPR, we stood up slot machine gaming from soup to nuts, that entire regulatory scheme. It had, it had never been done before in Florida. We did it in six months with no rule challenge, you know, state CIO, um, under a governor who, uh, was very, very in favor of, um, you know, technology outsourcing and making sure that state government was not, because he knew that we don't have all the skill sets necessary, wanted to make sure that we brought in the, the private sector as necessary. And I got to, I got to do all of that. So I can pick so many different things that I've, that I've been able to do. I, I can't, I would hate to pick a favorite. It would be difficult. Well, it seems like you're a sponge wherever you go. Uh, I think you absorb everything. And then you also know how to apply the things, the good things that you learn at all these different experiences that you have. For younger attorneys thinking about government work, 
what would you encourage them to do in in finding a good fit for them? But also once they're there, how can they maximize their experience so that they're learning just like you seem to have learned along the way? Well, I think, I mean, I would say two things, you know, we know as lawyers that you really have to, you have to lay the groundwork, you have to do the background research, right? So it's about figuring out what kinds of things, you know, a young lawyer or a law student likes to do, what kind, what areas are they interested in? And I assure you, there is, there is a public entity that does whatever that is. Do the research, you know, figure out who, who's running it. I'm sure the agency has a general counsel. There is nothing wrong with doing a little bit of cold calling or outreach to say, hey, I'm a, I'm a young lawyer, I'm a young law student, very interested in what you do, would love to come and sit and talk to you. We all know that lawyers like to talk, and they love to talk about what they do. And so it's not that hard to get to know the sort of, you know, ins and outs of an, a, an agency or entity that you want to work for. The other thing I would say, and I say this to young lawyers in general, is that the beauty of law practice and particularly in the public sector is that you there's so much variety. Just get in the door, get the experience, learn how to be a lawyer, and from there you can take those skills anywhere. Um, and I don't want I, I want folks to be excited about being um, public sector lawyers because it is exciting and it is challenging. Oh my gosh, constitutional issues environmental issues, healthcare issues, you name it. Um, Public perception issues. All of it. Yeah. All of it. I want to switch gears a little bit. In the middle of all this government work, you go to the governor's office, Governor Jeb Bush, and you have two positions there at different times, general counsel. And then you're also later on, I think you become his deputy chief of staff. Tell me, those are totally two different positions, right? even though you're in the governor's office, tell me what that was like and what the differences were when you were in each of those roles. Okay. So I, when I left um, the Agency for Healthcare Administration as an appellate lawyer, I went, yes, into Governor Bush's office as an assistant general counsel under the then general counsel, Chief Justice Charles Kennedy, um, who was, again, an incredible boss. I learned a great deal um, under his tutelage. When I went in as an AGC, very much like uh, the deputy chiefs of staff do, I had a slate of agencies whose legal issues and activities I was there to oversee um, and to liaise with them to make sure that they're, you know, to make sure that we knew what they were doing from a rulemaking perspective, major litigation, any other, you know, legal issues that they might have. Because all of those things could and likely did affect, you know, decisions that the governor would need would need to make. So the two, the assistant general counsel position and the deputy chief of staff position are really similar in that way, because that's kind of how um, the deputy chiefs were structured as well. You have a slate of agencies, but at that level, you're you're interacting with the agency secretaries and their chiefs of staff, you're talking more about policy things. Um, and because they, are, of course, as the appointed agency heads, are the individuals who are carrying out the governor's policies and the agency's missions, right? So similar um, similar responsibilities, but on, on a couple of different levels. But as you, I'm sure, know, having spent a great deal of time in Tallahassee, 
policy and law and legal issues go together. And so as deputy chief or as assistant GC, those two positions always had to work together to make sure that, you know, um, that the governor was, that the positions and policies and positions that he was espousing were legally sound, or if we needed to defend them or whatever the case may be, we all had to work together to make sure that he was, that we were backing him up. It sounds like you used the same skill set for both jobs. Was there one job that was maybe the hours were different or the people you were interacting were, were different? No, not really. The hours were just, were always long. <laughs> always long. <laughs> the hours were always long, but the but the days went by quickly and and it was fun. You know, it was fun. Challenging as all get out, but it but it was fun because you are a part of a team. It's not like we were sitting in a room by ourselves just, you know, crunching away reading statutes. I mean, it's it was very, very interactive. And you and you never you never knew because in the governor's office, as I like to say, Every issue that comes in the door, you have to take. You've got to deal with it somehow. So, you know, a lot of times it was all hands on deck. A lot, you know, it was, it was really, it was great. Well, you go from there and then eventually you, you make it to the first DCA as an appellate judge. Those are totally two different Mm -hmm. issues. You're not getting the diversity probably of issues getting thrown at you. You have more time to think about things, contemplate them and write them out. Um, what made you decide to put your hat in the ring for the appellate position? I had always wanted to be an appellate judge. Um, after I settled on, you know, appellate litigation as the kind of law that I wanted to practice. Do you think that started when you were a law clerk? Because I think probably. it planted a seed in my head for yeah. sure. Yeah, it it probably did. It probably did. And like it was it was a dream job to work on the first district court of appeal now my mother god rest her soul always wanted me you know wanted to see me on the on the florida supreme court i'm like i, I never really aspired to that mother dear but well the first dca and well and you know the in the district court of appeal as the you know you by still have large, time by the way by <laughs> large the, yeah right <laughs> no thanks <laughs> as you know a court of you know general jurisdiction and more often than not the you know the court of last resort i mean we got everything and then at the first district court of appeal we also had workers comp and i i had a lot of the agency issues oh uh, yeah, yeah a lot of the administrative things i mean you know everything cr- you know criminal right. all of that stuff and I, yeah, it was completely different from from working in the executive, but I loved it. And I loved being able to sit and contemplate and read and, you know, write and um, enjoy oral argument from the other side of the bench. That, you know, that was nice. And also create a small, but I did, I created a small team inside my suite, you know, my assistant and my two or three um, law clerks. And I think I had an intern as well um, over time. So, and we were a team. And so my need, my need for being part of a team was um, satisfied, you know, through that, but I, it was great work. It was, it really was, it, it was the dream job that I expected it to be. Well, most people stay, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you left after I think six, five or six years. Yeah. Uh, what motivated you or caused you to want to make a change? 
I, um, as I told you earlier, I like change and variety. I am one of those, you know, strange people who thrives on change. I I know that sounds a little strange because, you know, I think most of the time we human beings like, you know, safety, security, and and routine, right? But I think I've just gotten to the point personally um, where I've, I wanted to, I wanted to, to be more engaged again, you know, as, as an appellate judge, particularly, you're so far removed from the constituents that you serve and coming from the executive branch where you are much closer, you know, to, to those individuals and you can see more the direct effect of what you do and the decisions you make and the, the work that your agency does. I think at the end of the day, I missed it. And I, and I ultimately wanted to, to be more active and and more engaged again. Well, you leave to, and you end up going back into private practice for a short time, but you end up back here Mm -hmm. in Tallahassee. Um, I think uh, your first position back was with the Department of Juvenile Justice. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about the agency and and your work there. Again, one of the agencies, I will tell you, when when I left DJJ, it was bittersweet because I had grown to love not only the work in the agency, but but my team. Um, DJJ was once upon a time, you remember health and rehabilitative services, right? Yes. That huge agency that ultimately became DCF, DCF, (laughs) DJJ, ACA, uh, Department of Health, something else, Elder Affairs. So they all used to be one. And DJJ, um, as the name suggests, is the agency that is responsible for working with at-risk youth in large part to do prevention work. The agency does a lot of prevention work, which is really where the best money is spent, right? So to keep kids from getting into the juvenile justice system in the first place. But if for whatever reason they do end up in the juvenile justice system, DJJ is uh, where we do the rehabilitative work for those kids. And I had never really had any interaction with folks at DJJ during any of my prior um, government roles. I'd had plenty of interaction with DCF because when I was in Governor Bush's legal office, DCF was one of my agencies. So I will say I kind of called on that experience to at least understand the um, the overarching issues and and concerns, right? That that DJJ has, but I got to tell you, it was it was a very rewarding work to see when kids who unfortunately came through the system to see them make it through and come out the other end and thrive. That's, oh, I bet that's the best thing. And there are, there are so many of those stories that people don't hear about. You know, you hear about the, unfortunately, the issues when, you know, a kid escapes or a kid does something terrible. And those are the stories that make the news. The success stories, unfortunately, don't. But I can assure you that those stories exist and they're more, they happen more often than than you realize. And so that's, that's a great thing. But the, I think the hardest thing for me during that two years was, knowing that I had 
care of other people's children. And, you know, anything can happen, you know? Um, and so that was, that was for me the biggest, that was the thing that weighed the most on me. Um, but I, but I enjoyed it. I really did. Well, you carry that weight really well. I mean, I think one of the reasons why we wanted to interview here is because I follow you on Twitter and, uh, you have these great motivational tweets, but you're always really positive. Um, I've heard from other people around town in Tallahassee that you are a team builder, that you motivate your team. Um, you're always, but you have a realistic look. You're not Pollyanna about anything. Um, what in your background, maybe your mom, or I, I don't know what it is about you, but you've been that way since I've known you. How do you stay so positive? I mean, these are really heavy issues that you have dealt with and that you're talking about today. Well, you know, I love the Lord. I was raised by a God-fearing woman. Um, I pray. I have to pray my way out the door every day. Um, and I know that there is n that life is good, at least my, from my perspective. And my mindset is that life is good. No, no matter that there are negative things that happen, no matter that they, that everybody isn't, you know, good, no matter, no matter what, overall from begin from the day I was born to the day the good Lord decides that, that I have done my work on this earth. My life has been good. It hasn't been perfect. I'm not rich. All of those things. I haven't been on the you know cover of Vogue. I don't have a singing <laughs> career like I would have loved to have had, but life is good. And I have positive expectations of, you know, the, the good things coming my way. But I also do realize that even as I've had these challenging positions, that I was there I was there because I was supposed to be there. And so, you know, I don't know if you've heard the the phrase that, you know, work is worship, but it is. So if I believe that I'm there for a reason, then I'm going to, you know, I think I saw the other day, somebody said, walk into the room like God sent you in there. That's, that is, that's how I operate. So that's similar to the concept of Dharma, which is like karma is, you know, mm -hmm. kismet or whatever comes back to you, but Dharma is the work. Yeah. You're there for the work and the work is there for you. Exactly. Um, and so you may as well have fun and make the best of it. And I do, I love, you know, putting together teams of people, having fun. I know we work hard, 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 but we do have fun. We laugh, you know, all of that. And so, you know, you mentioned my, my Twitter presence. So I was, I do believe, and somebody out there can prove me wrong, but I believe I was the first Florida judge to have a presence on Twitter. And I think I did that in 2010, 2011, something like that. So, you know, there is a hashtag now, it's judges who tweet and just uh, Judge Costello. I don't know if you know who mm -hmm. she is. I do. She, we interviewed her and she turned me on to that. And so I started a Twitter account, mm -hmm. but I follow other judges. And I, I think I started following you uh, at that same time. I never thought that social media could be good. <laughs> But it really is just a positive, fun mm -hmm. thing to do. And it's a great way to share thing, positive things that are going on with the bar, with these kind of things, podcast. It is. Um, tell us a little bit about the Friday dance. The How Friday dance. Yes. So, um, again, you know, I like to use my social media powers for good because sometimes it can get a little intense uh, on uh, Twitter in particular. And so I don't know. What is, I think, I think I'm in my third year now of the Friday dance party. One Friday morning, I got up, 
I found a, you know, a dance gif and I, you know, said I made some sort of a comment and hashtag Friday dance. And I, and I don't even, I didn't intend for it to be a Friday dance party. It was just me (laughs) tweeting about, yay, I'm happy it's Friday. And so I think I started doing it then every Friday and people just started, you know, organically subtweeting that and or replying to it with their own dance. And before I knew it, it became a Friday dance party. But here's a funny thing. As I was going through confirmation for my position as a ACA secretary last session, I was in front of um, one of the um, one of the committees that I had to go uh, before for confirmation, and I will and I can't remember exactly which committee it was on, but Senator Danny Burgess said something like, "Well, I'm only going to vote for your confirmation if you agree to continue the." <laughs> The Friday dance party. I mean, you know, you gotta, you gotta love it when, <laughs> when you know your Twitter shtick ends up as you know as part of your confirmation process. Well, I look forward to the shtick <laughs> every Friday. Um, but you did touch on one thing we haven't discussed in our podcast. We've had a lot of people come through and talk about the JNC process. What was the process like going in front of the legislature to get confirmed to be a secretary of an agency? And you've done um, it more than once. I have. <laughs> I have. And, you know, it is my approach to it, certainly this this past time, but I think even the the prior two times, my approach was to let them, to the extent that I could, let the legislature, legislators see me and get to know me for who I am. Not to talk about my resume, not to talk about, you know, the things that I've done, not to talk about how fantastic I am, none of that, but to give them all a sense of who I am, where I came from, and what matters to me, and to just be as, you know, authentic and real to them, to let them see, I'm, and I'm hopefully people will say, you know, Simone doesn't put on airs, what you see is what you get, you know, she's not going to. She's not going to hide the ball. If, you know, she's got bad news to deliver, she's going to deliver it. She's going to be practical. And I want, that was the approach that I have always taken during the confirmation process. Well, you got through this last time. You're Secretary of ACA now. Tell us a little bit about the agency and what it is doing these days. So the agency does two very, very important things. Uh, One of those things is that it administers the state's now roughly $36 billion Medicaid program, which is a state and federal collaboration from a funding perspective and operationally as well. And on the other uh, side of the house, we regulate the state's 45,000, I think it's 45,000, maybe even more than that, health facilities. So from hospitals to assisted living facilities, clinical labs, you name it, we either license and or regulate them. So that means we have an army of people doing, you know, surveys and inspections um, on the HQA, or I should, shouldn't, I shouldn't speak in um, acronyms, on the health quality assurance side, our HQA. And State of course, government is full of is acronyms. Full of yes. them. <laughs> um, and then we have, of course, an army of people on the, uh, on the Medicaid side um, making that run. Now, we at ACA 
we do, we're sort of the, the business end, right, of the Medicaid program. So we contract with health plans who provide um, managed care for our Medicaid subscribers. Uh, we also have a network of physicians because not everybody is on managed, is in, in a managed care plan. Some just kind of go and they have what we call fee-for-service Medicaid coverage. We do all of the, you know, Medicaid reimbursements to the providers. We do all of the communicating with the federal government. And when their rules change, we have to communicate that down and adjust our systems, et cetera, et cetera. It's it's a lot of work. Um, We, you know, we impose quality measures on our health plans. And so we have people in-house, including a chief medical officer, who are always scanning the horizon to look at trends in healthcare and how to improve outcomes for the people um, that we serve. And you're saying we, how many employees are are in-house at ACA? Um, really only 1,500, which is about half the size of my DJJ team. We had, I think that agency has about 3,300 employees. Well, we could talk all day about state government, uh, about all of these things, but I, I know that your your time is pressed. One last question. If you had a piece of advice for a new attorney, either in or out of the courtroom, what would it be? If Okay, I'm going to answer the question as if I am giving advice to an appellate attorney who is you know about to walk in for her first oral argument. First of all, don't let your boss, don't go in there and tell the judges that it's your first professional <laughs> oral argument. Just don't do that, okay? But do be prepared. Be as prepared as you can be, but just know that from the moment you step to the podium, you know your cases, you know your case, you're going to get questions that you did not anticipate getting. But have the confidence in yourself. There's always something that you can draw on inside your own case. That will help you answer that unanticipated question. Have confidence in yourself. Don't let the judges see you sweat. You'll be fine. Thank you so much, Secretary Marsteller, for for coming in today. And, oh, well, and thanks have a for great having weekend. me. Thanks for having me. It's been a joy. I want to thank Clay Shaw for making us sound so good, and Katie Young and Rebecca Bandy from the Latimer Center for Professionalism, who keep the podcast going. If you'd like more information on Secretary Marsteller or to follow her on Twitter, check out the links under this posting. Stay safe, everyone. 